There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest is Dr. Stephanie Powell. Dr. Powell was a Los Angeles Police Department officer for 30 years, retiring as a sergeant. She is now the Vice President and Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Stephanie Powell holds a Doctor of Education in Organizational Leadership and is an Adjunct Assistant Professor of Behavioral Science at Los Angeles Trade Technical College. Dr. Powell uses her considerable skills and insight to educate others about the complex and often misunderstood world of sex trafficking and to create positive change for its victims and survivors. Dr. Stephanie Powell, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Now, thanks for your time. It's an honor to have you with us. So we'll start, Stephanie. You spent 30 years in law enforcement. Was there anything in your childhood that led you to that career? Did you ever have an aha moment that moved you in that direction? You know, Chris, it's funny. Um, you know, as I told you before, I'm older than Methuselah. <laughs> but um, when I was a little girl, um, little girls just were not police officers. So it didn't come so much from my childhood as it came from my father. So I was a Los Angeles uh, <clears throat> Unified <clears throat> school teacher and I taught elementary school and LAPD had just gone through a consent decree in which, or were going through a consent decree in which they had to hire more minorities and, and women. Because back then you had to be 5'8". And um, although women were, so that knocked out some women and knocked out some minority groups. Um, but also women were not allowed to work the field during that time. So as a little girl, I didn't see uh, female officers working um, black and whites. So my father said, so they were doing this huge push, right, to uh, um, get women on the force. And they had this billboard that said, quit your job for a career, join LAPD. And my father was like, you should do it. And I was, and I grew up in South Central LA. I was, police didn't have a good reputation. <laughs> And I was like, uh, mm, I don't think I want to do that. And he said, be a part of the change. He said, be a termite. The termite is a small insect that can take a building down from within. So that's how I joined the Los Angeles Police Department. Be a part of the change. That's amazing. I think we have a title for your next book. Yes. <laughs> so there aren't many retired law enforcement officers with doctor in front of their name. Every doctor is a hard-earned, but yours has to be right up there at the top. At one point, you were getting off your shift as a vice officer at 2 a.m. and sleeping in your car at the university so you could get to class on time. And you're a single mom. Why was it so important for you to earn that degree, that doctorate? It was very important for me to earn the doctorate because, you know, one, of course, I wanted my children to be proud of me. But two, um, I've, I've always I, I've always found it to be important to be part of of change as it pertains to the, to society as well as African-American community. And I just felt that by gaining this doctorate that I would be able to to help in that way. 
in terms of writing, in terms of research. So, and teaching. Teaching is the core of what I do. So um, that's why it was so important. And as much money as I was spending, Chris, <laughs> at the end of the day, I didn't want to be able to say I got a few books for those multitude of thousands of dollars that I was spending on that doctorate. So once I got in, I had to finish. Dr. Powell, it is. <laughs> and, you know, being a police officer for 30, 30 years wasn't enough for you to have your kids be proud of you? <laughs> I mean, come on. But also, that wasn't enough. <laughs> I don't think you realized that when you started your response, but you said, be a part of change. So again, I think that is your slogan. That's your mantra. And that is just at your core, which I, I just love and you can just feel in our conversation. So, so thank you for sharing that. <laughs> you had several memorable, rewarding and demanding assignments during your distinguished career. The most notable was your assignment as the senior lead officer in the Foothill area shortly after the disturbing and incendiary Rodney King incident. During that period, the California State Assembly honored you as Woman of the Year. In 1995, you were designated as the department spokesperson assigned to the chief of police. Tell us about those experiences, please. Oh, my goodness. So uh, during that time, uh, politics were playing a part of everything. So just watching the behind the scenes, watching behind the scenes and then have to be the one to go before the camera to explain the things that I, I could talk about. I think for me, it was very emotional, especially being African-American and uh, having to explain what went on as it pertains to the Rodney King incident, the actual beating, um, because it felt as though I was a part of two worlds. You know, here I was, you know, born and raised in, in South Central LA, um, and 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 witnessing things like police brutality, and then now being on a force, and sometimes being ridiculed by my own community as being part of the problem. And to this uh, 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 point is that when I did my dissertation, I did it on the effects of emotional uh, dissidents uh, when it came to uh, being African American female. In, uh, in police departments, because you feel like you're living in, in both worlds. And there's an expectation of being loyal in both worlds. So um, uh, it, it was a very interesting time period because, because I feel um, very committed to any community that I serve. Um, I, 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 I want what's going to be the best for them. So um, the two chiefs that I, I worked under were amazing. Um, I worked under um, Willie Williams and um, Bernard Parks as their um, um, press relations person. And they too, believe it or not, internally, they had the same feelings for the community. But again, you know, sometimes your forward-facing message may be a little bit just a little bit different from the inward one. So um, it was, it was a, a very interesting time period. As we talk about personal well-being on Next Steps Forward, we often discuss mental health issues. You are in an extraordinarily stressful profession during some of the most difficult times, which you just touched on. Did you ever experience post-traumatic stress during or after your career? And if so, how did you address it? I didn't, you know, it's funny. I didn't, um, I, I didn't start to feel it until after I retired. 
you know, when you, when you're in it, you are in it all the time and you start to suppress things because that's the only way you're able to get to that next step, that next call. So you might have a, um, you might've seen something horrific and you finished up that call and then you go to the next call, but you cannot take what you just saw with you to your next call. And you definitely cannot take it home with you because you don't want to traumatize your family. You don't want them to be fearful every time you go to work. So I was so used to stuffing. So when I retired, all of that stuffing started to, 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 to come out. And that's when I, you know, I told my daughter, uh, I said, you know, I, I think I might have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, because sometimes I would feel emotional about something that I wouldn't before. And keep in mind, being a female in law enforcement, you did not cry. So, and listen, Chris, I am a crier. I am the most sensitive person in the world. And when I became a police officer, there was still that sensitivity, but I couldn't outwardly show it in front of people. So how I dealt with it, and, and one thing I learned was that Dealing with things like post-traumatic stress disorder, and when they talk about self-care, it's not going to the spa. So it's not a one-day thing. It's an everyday thing. So what I've started to learn, and just recently I'm learning this, is that sometimes you have to turn off. Because I'm the type that even though I'm not working, I'm still answering my phone, or I'm still answering questions, or I'm thinking about work. So turning off understanding that what I went through all had a purpose. And at the end of the day that I came out, um, I came out of it. I came out of it with, with my health and that that's a blessing. And by moving forward, I love the name of this show by moving forward and going to the next steps is really what helps me get, get through it because I maintain my purpose. When you and I spoke last week, we talked about your dissertation, which I know you said gives you PTSD. Uh, we talked about mine. My listeners know I'm getting my doctorate focused on PTSD and police officers. One of the research papers I read, uh, the woman wrote, everyone has a bad day, but police officers see everyone's bad day every day. You just talked about bottling it up for 30 years. How can somebody sustain that? I mean, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I think that I'm sustaining it. Maybe I'm not, you know, in my head, I'm doing good. You know, it's, it's, it, what I notice it is, okay. So the nonprofit that, that I, I work with right now, the National Center of Sexual Exploitation, we could be having a conversation like in a meeting and somebody will say that they heard something and they'll start to get tearful. I don't feel that, you know, I don't, I'll hear the story. You know, it's you say, okay, that's a pretty bad story. But it doesn't make me emotional. So that's when I know that I have really learned to um, how do you disengage my feelings. And then I'm going like, okay, these people are normal. I'm not normal. You know, because, you know, at first I'm going like, why is she crying about that? And then I'm going like, because she's normal, Stephanie. That's that's the voice in my head. I don't actually say that, but 
because she's normal and you're not. And so maybe you need to take a look at that. So sticking about, you know, stepping away from your emotions and suppressing feelings, how much of a stigma was attached to mental health from the time you began your law enforcement career in 1983 to the time you retired in 2013? And are things any different or better today than they were 10 years ago? Oh my goodness. You know what? Just by the mere fact that there's acknowledgement from the departments that there is there are mental health issues, just by the mere fact that the departments are talking about um, that, you know, officers sometimes need to take a, a, a day off or that um, it, it, it's, it's okay to express emotion about something that you may see. And even more importantly, that it is okay to see someone about the things that, that you've seen or experienced. When I came along, you didn't talk about that. And so that's probably part of, of, of why I am the way I am today, because you just sucked it up or you do it through humor. You know, after you see something horrific, you kind of make a joke about it to your a part, to your partner, knowing that it's really not funny, but it's kind of gallows humor, if that makes sense. Um, but think about it. When you're using gallow humor, you're 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 you are still detaching the feelings to what you just saw. So and and suicide, oh my God. If someone committed suicide, they were considered to be, that was considered to be a coward. And you didn't even, you didn't even speak their name after that. For me, I didn't see it as them being a coward, but sometimes my peers would to the point where they may not even attend the funeral to the point where the the brass may not even attend the funeral. So suicide was completely frowned upon. Um, as a cowardly way out of not dealing with your feelings. But thank God, you know, we are talking about um, suicide amongst officers. You know, as you know, and I'm sure in your research, that um, suicide is common. Alcoholism is common. And those are just ways of fighting those demons in your head, the things that you saw, because you're absolutely right. We see humanity at its worst. And let's add to that, you have a society that demonizes law enforcement. So what do you do? You end up only having, the, you feel the only people that really understand you are the people that you are working with who, are, who sometimes could be equally as damaged and hurt, right? Hurt people trying to figure out things with hurt people. Do you feel there have been any sort of, you know, one or two specific systemic changes in policing that have opened up the conversation or is it just more society in general being open to the discussion? I think it's a little bit of both. I know that in law enforcement, um, they uh, encourage you. And in some cases, you have to go and see um, the department therapist before you can go back um, uh, to duty. So, and then there's an encouragement um, from supervisors to really watch your, your people in terms of seeing if there's some personality changes um, or the lack of personality changes after something horrific 
happen. Also, the change that I've seen is that when an officer dies in the line of duty or um, commits suicide, um, behavioral science will now go into, I'll use LAPD as an example, will go into that division, you know, just to talk with people. You have peers um, that are designated um, that um, have been trained and we'll talk to people as well. So I just see the support there. And not to mention, I see the support of families as well. Um, a study that I read, and I can't remember what the numbers were, but I found that this to be interesting, that um, suicide is, is higher for families of police officers than the general public as well. So we cannot forget the families of, of law enforcement because I think, think that sometimes we forget that. And I think we sometimes forget that as law enforcement officers, because I think we're thinking they too will be able to suck it up or they're not, they don't really see the change in you or they don't see the loneliness because you're at work. My daughter, uh, during my, when I retired, my daughter spoke and let me tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. And she was saying things that I didn't realize. And keep in mind, she was in her 20s at this point. And um, she said, the one thing I understood that for some people, a bad day for their parents may be a paper cut. A bad day for my parent may be that they may not come back home. And so that just resonated with me because I didn't realize how intensely that that was for her, except for the fact that she would call me. I worked on it to cover assignment. She would, and I worked late at night. She would call me at least every hour, every two hours. Where I started to realize is that the reason why she's really calling me is just to make sure that I'm I'm okay. That's awesome. You had a moment while you're still in the force when three girls were arrested, including one from another city who didn't have the resources to get back home. As luck would have it, you'd had an invitation to speak to an organization called Journey Out. How did that connection help with that situation? And how did it factor into your own professional journey after you retired from the LAPD? Oh, that, that was interesting. So um, what I noticed during the time I, 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 I was a vice sergeant, I knew that there was this thing called human trafficking, but I could not, for some reason, I intellectually knew where what it meant, but I could not, for some reason, bridge that gap and apply it. If for some reason, it just, the two weren't connecting. However, um, the, the more I worked and talked to, to victims, I understood it. So um, I spoke for an organization. Back then, they were called the Mary Magdalene Project. The name changed to Journey Out. And I spoke to them about what I was seeing on the streets and they gave us our information. And I have to also give a shout out at that point, uh, Michael Moore, who is now the chief of police for LA was my deputy chief. And he wanted to see us work closely with nonprofits. And that was kind of never heard of. And so as a result of that, um, uh, I gave a speech and then I hooked up with the organization. So when I got these three girls, Two of them I had to take to jail because they had a warrant. The third one didn't. And they were working for a pimp. And they were from back east. I didn't want to leave this girl in that in that room because, one, I knew that the hotel was going to throw her out. I knew she didn't know anything about L.A. 
So I just happened to call Journey out and said, hey, I'm in, and I was in the field. I'm at this hotel room with this girl and, and she needs a way home. Is there any way that you guys can pay for her to get home? And they did. What I didn't realize is that two years later, I would lead that same organization called Journey Out. And I ended up leading the organization for seven years. And because of my experience with LAPD, we worked very closely with LAPD in terms of being a resource for the victims that um, they would encounter in the field. You know, human trafficking and sex trafficking has been a big focus of, of mine in the show for the last year, year and a half. We've had some tremendous guests on, uh, many of them have been survivors. What can we do just to raise more awareness to the general public? Because people think, well, it's not going to be in my front yard or my backyard. I've got the white picket fence and two golden retrievers and some European car. Uh, but you can't Google human trafficking and look at the news and not see eight different articles in New Jersey and Arizona and Utah and insert your town here. What can we do to, to raise more awareness for folks? I think that the, the awareness piece is extremely important that people need to understand that it's not something that just happens on an international level. It's happening here. And I think people need to also understand that it is not just happening in poor communities. Does it happen in poor communities? Absolutely. But this really can be anybody's daughter or son. Um, this can happen to young adults can be recruited into trafficking as well as children. Um, people need to understand that um, uh, it, when I was at Journey Out, uh, we did direct services for adult victims of human trafficking. And I ran into daughters of deacons, of, of, of attorneys. It did not matter the, the uh, social income of the parent. And these were kids that were over 18, especially the college girls. So um, I, I think people need to understand that because it's not only being aware yourself, but also talking to your college age student about it as well. My daughter went to um, Historical Black College uh, in Atlanta, Spelman, and she told me just after three months of being there how um, uh, pimps would go to parties and be recruiting girls. Now, the so for for your listeners, the pimp doesn't show up in the um, uh, apple green lime green suit with big hat. He is going to be close to your kid's age, um, and he's not going to oftentimes he's not going to always be black either. So I think people need to understand that it can enter into our households. If your kid has a phone and your kid has uh, a computer, if your kid goes to parties, if your kid goes to the mall, coupled with low self-esteem, your kid can be um, a victim of, of human trafficking. We had a guest on a few months ago, who's now a friend, Brian Searcy, uh, Air Force veteran, and he focuses on situational awareness and preparedness to fight human trafficking. And so talks about that. And your point about it being anywhere, we had another guest on who's a survivor recently uh, from Naples, Florida, which is one of the most affluent towns in the country, let alone Florida. And she was trafficked through Naples and through South Florida, which to your point, you know, it can happen anytime, anywhere. Was the police mindset about sex trafficking back when you were serving just prostitutes or was there a different viewpoint of it? Yes. Yeah, so they, um, they saw it and in, 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 
In some cases, not all. Let me just say not all, because it's a huge paradigm shift in law enforcement really understanding this. But it was the idea that it was all prostitution, that everybody, and I'm talking about when I was um, on the force, that everyone in prostitution chose to be there, even the minors, because back then I was arresting minors for prostitution. The, the um, uh, I mean, uh, and I'm not proud to say this, but the youngest that I ever arrested was 12 years old for prostitution. And I didn't feel good about that. But what I also knew that at that point, there, was, there weren't any other resources but juvenile hall. And there was nobody to pick her up. So I didn't feel good about that. I'm thinking, even as a police officer with, with different laws that are out there, you don't always feel good. You're going like, this doesn't seem right, but it's the law. You know, and so, uh, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately, that that was the case. But there are still states here in the United States that are still arresting um, minors for for prostitution. There are not safe harbor laws everywhere. But having said that, I really do see that um, that that is starting to to change. That paradigm shift is really starting to change and that they're really understanding that um, not everyone that's in prostitution is there for um, by choice. So not everyone that's in prostitution is a victim of human trafficking, but every victim of human trafficking is in prostitution. When did you make the move from Journey Out to the National Center on Sexual Exploitation? And what was the motivation for the move? I made that about three years ago. And um, you know I, I was doing a lot in the Los Angeles area and so having the ability to do it on a more national basis was great. And then to be able to teach law enforcement how to have a more victim-centered approach um, when working with victims of human trafficking and encouraging them to go after the sex buyers as opposed to the prostituted. And do you feel like your experience as an officer help you be more effective and maybe perhaps more empathetic in your current role? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I call it that I'm bilingual, I also speak policies. Um, <laughs> coming from law enforcement um, and, and talking to law enforcement makes a huge difference um, because not only can I say the things that I need to say, but they it's safe in that room for them to say the things that they really want to say and to really have conversation um, about that. Uh, the one thing I wanted to add is that even though they they understand that everybody in in prostitution are not there by choice, they also begin to understand that sometimes people have to make choices when they have no other choices. And believe it or not, they are really empathetic to that. I know people don't see them as that, but and um, I was in Kentucky, and I played a clip of a young girl who was. She was in her 20s now, but she talked about being trafficked at 11. And I'm going to tell you, some of those guys got teary-eyed. They did. And I could see it in their face. See, those are the things that they don't see with law enforcement officers. But being in that room with them, I'm able to see it because I create a safe place. We've been talking to Dr. Stephanie Powell, and we'll be right back after a short break.
Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Dr. Stephanie Powell. She's a former Los Angeles Police Department Sergeant and the current Vice President and Director of Law Enforcement Training and Survivor Services at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Stephanie, what strategies have you found to be most effective in educating the public about the dangers of sexual exploitation and ways to prevent it? You know, I think the strategy is when you talk to people about human trafficking, you'll see that they become, you know, empathetic. But when you are able to get them to see that this could be their kid, man, that's when you you, you really see the change switch even in their eyes. The fact that this too could be your kid. Because when you understand that, then you really understand the importance of not only talking to your kid, but talking to your community. Because listen, predators look for soft targets. It's almost, I'm almost sounding like a, a, um, I'm teaching a, ther- a, a terrorist class. But they look for soft targets. Guess who the soft target is, audience? Your naive kid that we, we, including me, have protected because we've kept them in this bubble. And then we send them out to this world that we know is not nice. And then they, but they think the world is nice because they're naive. Man, do we really set them up for predators to go after them because they're so naive 
in which they're taught to always be polite, always trust people in authority. You know what I mean? You know, not even setting boundaries. Why would you set boundaries if the world is great? If everything is, if you everybody saw the movie Pleasantville, <laughs> where everything is is black and white and 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 it's it's all good, right? Um, I think when people really realize that this too can enter your home, regardless of whether your home is is behind gates with a guard in front or if it's a, a home in, in the projects or our apartment. Everyone needs to understand human trafficking and people also need to understand uh, the role that sex buyers play into the world of human trafficking. You know, in the first half of the show, you talked about your daughter being in college and seeing recruiters being at parties. Now, my wife and I have three kids and my oldest daughter, uh, she's just finished her sophomore year in college. And so to your point, you try and protect them in the bubble, but those things go through your head at midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning on Friday, Saturday, when you know they're not going to be in the dorm probably. Um, and you just kind of, I guess, hope and pray for the best, but also to your point, making them aware, teaching them things to look out for, you know, be with somebody else at all times, uh, all of those, what I'll call simple things, but those things add up in terms of protection uh, and preparedness. You know, and it's not only, Chris, it's not only um, sex trafficking. Um, several years ago, there was a case uh, at UCLA where this young girl came from an affluent family. She meets this guy. This guy ends up being a drug trafficker and a homicide occurs. I'm just saying that, you know, sometimes when kids are naive and they're in this bubble, they look for you know, the, the, the bad guy, or they look for, they look for a life that is completely different from theirs to be able to experience. Right. I I think that the message to parent, what I did with my daughter is I said, okay, I know you're not going to tell me everything that, that happens that you, you run into. But what I did make sure is to say, if you have a question that you really don't want to talk to me about, you know, talk to an aunt, talk to my best friend, just talk to somebody. Now, here's the secret. You and I know that when you tell them to go talk to auntie so-and-so, you know, auntie so-and-so is going to come back and tell you what's going on. And so now you're speaking through auntie so-and-so, you're still getting your message across. They just need to be able to talk to someone because if not, who are they getting uh, advice from? their friend who is equally as inexperienced. <laughs> Why don't we know this when we were their age? <laughs> right. We had to become parents to figure this out. Yes. Yeah. Are there misconceptions about sexual exploitation that you've encountered in your work? And if so, how do you address them? I think uh, some of the misconceptions, um, when we talk about the, the, the internet, um, how the kids think that it's a safe space. So if your kid is on a gaming system or you'll ask them, who, who are you playing the game with? Who, who are you talking to? My friend. Well, who's your friend? Mike. Have you ever seen Mike? No. Well, how's Mike your friend? You know, but they won't get in a car with a stranger. They won't talk to a stranger when they're walking to the store, but they will talk to a stranger on, uh, on social media and on the internet. So I think that that is a misconception. 
I think the misconception of human trafficking is that it's only happening to those people, um, the the mis the disenfranchised, the marginalized. Yeah, it does. But here's the bottom line: it happens to vulnerable people, and you could have all the money in the world and still be vulnerable, especially if for whatever reason you don't think you're enough. And so, what does that mean? It means I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. And and guess what plays into that? Society and what we see on TV and what we see in the media in terms of beauty standards. I'm supposed to have a boyfriend or I'm supposed to be in a relationship and I'm not. I'm not enough. Well, guess what? A predator will find those gaps and find a way to fill it. So, you know, audiences, you are, as you're hearing me, you could see that anybody could have those gaps. And to have a gap without boundaries is a dangerous place to be. And it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Anybody can feel like you're not enough. You know, and as great as technology is, it creates a lot of problems, especially to your point, those that are vulnerable, those that are weak, those that are unsure of themselves. And a few years ago, it was right before COVID, my our middle daughter, uh, inner teenager, she has her iPhone and she was saying, Dad, I keep getting these calls from Korea. But she's like, I said, decline, hit decline, hit decline. Well, I remember one time her phone was on the counter and it rang from Korea and she wasn't there. And I looked, I'm like, I'm going to answer this. So I swiped it open. And all of a sudden, because it was answered, the guy came on the camera and you can't tell from my Zoom right now, but I'm 6'3", 215, so I'm not a small guy. So I held it up to myself. So he could see me. I said, don't you ever call this number again? And he just disappeared. So it's little things like that, that you just don't know. And with all these spam numbers now, they track your phone where it's like one digit off of your phone number. And it's just getting smarter and smarter. And we just have to try and stay, you know, one or two steps ahead the best we can. Yes, absolutely. In your opinion, what needs to change society to reduce the prevalence of sexual exploitation and create a safer environment for everyone? I think that um, people need to understand that um, what what really drives um, a human trafficking is the customer base, the sex buyer. You know, I, and and I don't mean it in these terms in terms of sounding impersonal, but it's supply and demand. Unfortunately, I think that there needs to be laws um, that are more stringent. As it, uh, as it pertains to those that buy sex. In Texas, I always laugh and go like, Texas is not playing. It's a felony to buy another human being for the purposes of sex. And when that law went through, um, they have these things called John boards. And it's kind of like um, social media where, where sex buyers talk to sex buyers. And they talked about how, look, it's not worth me catching a felony case. Um, uh, for, for buying sex. So I think the deterrent is in, in our laws, the deterrent is men talking to men to say, when you buy somebody for the purposes of sex, you're really objectifying that person and seeing them as a commodity. Um, you also don't know who is the victim of, of sex trafficking and who is not because they don't self-identify, period. So they're not going to self-identify to the sex buyers. But there have also been studies that shown that for some sex buyers, they didn't care. 
So I think that um, I think we need to go through a whole awareness education piece of how women are seen in, you know, in our society as not being objects, not being uh, um, uh, a commodity. And we as women have to see ourselves as that as well as not being objects, not being a commodity. Um, but I think men need to get involved in terms of teaching other men. You just referenced a few studies. You would have made the sacrifices you made to earn your doctorate if you didn't believe in the value of research and data. How can research and data analysis be used to better understand sexual exploitation and to inform policy and practice? You know, one thing that I learned going moving from Journey out to, to, um, to the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, you know, as an executive director, um, you know, I, I kept my nose to the grind because we did direct services. Um, what I didn't understand was how was the effect of policy on the job that I had, as well as the clients that I was serving. What I also began to understand is a lot of times policy is driven by research. So research is extremely important. Money put into research is extremely important and not because it is the um, flavor of of the day. You know, a lot of money was put into domestic violence at at one time. And hence, what happened? The policy, not only did the policy change, but people understood um, uh, domestic violence. That not only impacted the victims, but also law enforcement in terms of how they handled it. And so now it's human trafficking, not only sex, but labor. We can't just do it for a few years and not keep it up. It has to be continuous, right? Because things change. I I can't keep up because, you know, I I told you I'm old. I can't even keep up with the changes of technology. Think about the impact of of AI, that the impact of social media as it pertains to human trafficking, right? And how predators are able to get into our homes. So if we know that that's ever evolving, well, guess what? Research and policy is going to have to be ever evolving as well. So we've, we've, got, to, we've got to keep it up. We've got to keep an eye on it. We've got to put money into it. The center has an annual Dirty Dozen list. Some of the companies on this year's list are names parents have heard of. Apple App Store, eBay, Snapchat, Twitter, and Instagram. And some of them are names many people probably haven't heard of, myself included, Roblox, GitHub, Kick, and Discord. What do they have in common that landed them on the Dirty Dozen list? And what should we do about them? Well, you know, one of the things, and, and not just for those that, that you named, is um, age verification. There's got to be a better way. You know, um, I can get, you know, a kid can get on. And all you do is check a box. Are you over 18 years old? Yep. And there you have it. And now they're on. Um, so uh, I, I, age verification needs to be locked down more. Um, these 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 sites need to do a better job of monitoring um, the, the chat system, monitoring what people are posting and get it off of there. And not to mention, if someone 
um, actually uh, uh, makes a complaint, take that content off. If if I if someone is making a complaint that uh, my rape video was was posted on on Pornhub, take it off. If someone is saying that um, um, they were underage and now they are a victim of of cyberbullying, take it off. No questions asked. Just get it off of there. Um, so I I I mean those are some of the the problems. And as a result of that. Uh, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. Um, we have lawsuits against Pornhub and 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 Twitter and 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 um, um, you know uh, uh, companies like that because they're not quickly taking things off. Take it off. We know that there's a dark side to everything. There's a good side to this stuff, but there's also a dark side, and they're not addressing the dark side. And with apologies to a certain car maker for paraphrasing their most famous ad campaign, is it fair to say today's pornography is not your father's pornography? Now, how is pornography different now than, say, 30 or 40 years ago? You know, pornography, um, when you think about the, the sexual content and the suggestions, I, I think pornography has probably always been damaging. But now what we're seeing is that it's becoming more violent. Um, so, you know, even our father's, uh, our father's uh, pornography was, was, uh, had, had the same effects in terms of people getting addicted to it. But it's the violence that they're seeing, you know, and, and you know, the choking scenes, um, the racialized porn. Um, and, and when you talk about it being addictive, we know that when you're addicted to something, you start to get used to it. And so you're looking for that better high. Well, unfortunately, if we are introducing violence and sex, you're looking for a, a, a better high or you're looking for a younger individual. And then you might even act those things out in real life because that's how you seek that other high because your mate if you're 50 and your mate is 50, your your 50-year-old mate is still gonna be 50. And your 50-year-old mate not be may not be willing to act out for things that, that you might be seeing. So what do you do? You go out and seek that. Um and, and want to seek that 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 advertisement. You know, when it comes to the 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 the, the choking thing, sometimes you know, uh young men. Their sex education may be uh, pornography. And if they're seeing that, and if they're seeing that someone is um, uh, in, involved in sexual activity that involves choking, and the person looks like they're enjoying it, well, guess what? That becomes the lesson for that person of what they think that that's what's supposed to be involved. But here's the deal. The, the women and girls start to think that that's also what they have to do. How do I know this? I'm going to put my daughter on blast again. Now, of course, she wasn't talking about herself. She was talking about her friends in terms of how choking started to become normalized in the college community when it came to sexual activity. And I, playing along with her, 
I know you're not doing this, but tell your friends that that's not supposed to be happening. Well, you know, of course, I had to throw in. First of all, y'all shouldn't be having sex anyway. But <laughs> you didn't have but your auntie go talk know. to her. What did you say? You didn't have her auntie go talk to her. Yeah, right. I had her go talk to her too. <laughs> hey, I think this is happening. Just have a conversation with her. But you know, I think that um, uh, if that becomes if pornography becomes the teacher, not only for the young men, for but for the young ladies as well. Imagine, you know, what we're doing as it as it pertains to to pornography. So people need to understand that not only is that going on, but again, how can affect all of us. On to that point, think about these teenagers and now maybe early 20 year olds who were homeschooled for a couple of years. And as you're talking about these videos, I'm thinking about a friend of mine who's a health teacher at a high school locally, and he's going through the sex education part and was talking about, you know, who knows how babies are born. And one of the students raised his hand and said, you know, Mr. Smith, I've been home on the internet for two years. I know exactly what happens. But to your point, what type were they watching and what becomes normalized for them? Yeah, exactly what I just described is what becomes normalized to them. And I just talked about choking, you know, I didn't get into the other things that are just as bad. But you know what's so sad is, as you were talking, two words came to mind for me, innocence, loss. You know, when you're losing your innocence, I'm sorry, when you are eight, nine years old, you know, you should know where babies come from, nor should you care. You know, you need to be caring about, you know, riding your bicycle and playing with your friends and, you know, being part of a team. And so when we talk about pornography and what are some of the changes? The changes are how easily it could come into your home by way of social media, by way of suggestions that might pop up on our unfiltered computers because the parents don't know how to put those filters on. One of the things that the National Center on Sexual Exploitation um, uh, came across is that when we talk about the Chromebooks, how they were giving those away during COVID, well, they were giving them away with no filters on them. So guess what? You had a kid who made Google um, bondage because they had to do a report on slavery. You can only imagine the unfiltered stuff that started to come through. Well, guess what? Once that starts to come through and if your kid is clicking on it, the algorithms are going to bring more things in. And so we had a conversation with Google and as a result, um, now those the filters are put on before they give those Chromebooks. But think about the parents that were thinking, because I would have been thinking this, if the if if I got a computer from school, that it must be safe. And so we have things that are unsafely entering into our into our homes through our gaming systems and through some of those companies that we just named. We need to pay attention, and it we it becomes a generation that becomes lost because of things that are able to enter into our homes. We've been talking about technology being a contributor to sexual exploitation. Do you see technology playing in the prevention of sexual exploitation? You know, technology owes it to society 
to play a part in the prevention piece? You know, what would be so wrong with, I mean, they're good for advertisements. I mean, they could use uh, uh, that platform. They have a huge platform for prevention and awareness. They need to use it. They owe that to society because of the harms that their platforms um, are, 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 are able to, to do. Use that same platform for prevention and awareness. And we, we, meaning the consumers of that, we need to hold them accountable and hold their feet to the fire. It's not okay. Stephanie, we have just a few minutes left. National Center of Sexual Exploitation takes the position that the problem of child sexual abuse is serious and pervasive, but it is not hopeless. What are the most important messages about sexual exploitation that you'd like to leave our audience with today? Online safety. I think um, in, in your state, see what your state is doing. What is the policy? What are the policies that might be out there as it pertains to online safety? Um, for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, the strategy is prevention, and that prevention is through litigation. Again, holding people accountable. Corporations, again, holding corporations up, uh, accountable and through um, policy. Um, I, I think that it, it's important for all of us to get involved. You know, we can't fall asleep on the wheel and just think that people, that are politicians, and that these uh, uh, social media um, organizations are taking care of us. They're not. We have to take charge of the wheel. We have to um, um, hold people's feet to the fire we have to be a part of that change. So it goes back to uh, what you're saying and, and in terms of the name, name of your show. Next steps forward, <laughs> we need to really be paying attention to policies, corporations, and holding people uh, accountable when they're not taking care of us, the consumers. Dr. Stephanie Powell, thank you so much for being with us today. And more importantly, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, sir, for having me on the show. I love the work that 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 you're doing. No, thank you. It's an honor. I'm Chris Meek. We're out of time. I want to thank the audience for being here. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.